Hi everyone, welcome to Into the Archives. While our main sermon podcast, uh, Words from the Wildwood, can be found on Sunday mornings, this is more of a retrospective, a looking back at where I have been, where I preached, what I've had the opportunity to do, and the observations I've made along the way. I hope that you can look back with me at many of these sermons that have come. Some may sound a little dated, but you might be impressed to hear things that were going on then that are still going on today. I hope you enjoy this offering from the archives. Tonight, by request, we're going to start a special series on spiritual warfare. When I say spiritual warfare, you might think of something like Frank Peretti's books. Uh, You know, uh, This Present Darkness or Piercing the Darkness. You have these images of of Christians and non-Christians moving through their lives with demonic spirits hovering over their head or claws grabbing into their flesh and tortured by the the sounds of demons in their ears. And and people, when they hear about spiritual warfare, they get kind of freaked out. get kind of worried. They kind of go, I don't want to know about that. I don't want to know what's going on. If I'm just ignorant, it won't affect me. Here's the thing. You can't be ignorant of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare began in the Garden of Eden. It began with our very first parents. It brought the downfall of the human race from the first two people on. So spiritual warfare is a very important subject. It's very important because it's very real. It affects every single person in this room every single day. Do you know why it affects you every single day? Because spiritual warfare is psychological warfare. Those of you who are in the military know what psychological warfare is supposed to be about, right? Satan's primary weapon against you is psychology. It's in the head. It's at the precipice of the mind. That is why it is so important. Tonight, let's look at it. Where it all begins. Genesis 3, 1 through 5. This is where spiritual warfare begins. Begins in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. You know these verses well. You've seen them a million times. But I want you to think about them from a different perspective. Think about them from the perspective of a battle plan. Because you see, spiritual warfare is about confusion. Confusing the enemy. In this case, confusing the Christian. Spiritual warfare is about confusion. Take a look at it. Genesis 3, 1 through 5 says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But... God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I love how Satan snuck that in at the end. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. As if there's a a difference between what he said and what he slipped in at the end. I want to take a look at this tonight. Here it is. Verse 1a, the very first part. Notice this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. If you have a King James, I believe the word there is subtle. The word subtle. Now when you think of most people who are liars, we think in our culture of people who are bold-faced. I mentioned uh, Dick Nixon. He said, I am not a crook. He knew he was a crook. He knew he was wrong. He was a bold-faced liar. 
Nixon, God bless him, was a bold-faced liar. Better he had completely deceived himself about what he had done. But this is different. This is not a bold-faced lie. If I walk up to you and say, Charlie, there is no God, that is a bold-faced lie. That's the lie that the atheist has bought. But most human beings who have lived any length of time on the earth will know that that's a lie. So you can't start there. You've got to start somewhere subtle, somewhere simple. The slight twisting of a word. And that's where lawyers and politicians excel. They excel at the subtle art of saying one thing while at the same time leading you to believe something else. Take a look at it. The very next part. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now there's a question, right? When he phrased it that way, what was the purpose? Was it to gain information from Eve? Was he trying to get knowledge? Did, did the serpent not know what God said? No, the serpent knew exactly. What did he want to subtly do in the mind of Eve? He wanted to take a statement which was clear and plain and twist it just enough to allow wiggle room. Now, if you have kids or if you have watched kids, if you've taught kids in Sunday school, you know what wiggle room is. Some kids, you can look at them and they sit absolutely straight and they don't move. Some kids, you can stand over them, breathing on them with, with, with your hands on either side of them, and they're still going to inch for every little bit that they can get. Because some kids will just push it right to the edge. That's how the human condition is. We want to take everything that's ours. You tell a kid, don't jump off a cliff. Well, okay, that's obvious. How close to the edge of the cliff can I get? Can I get a foot from the cliff? Yes, you can get a foot from the cliff. Well, how about 11 inches? How about 10? Can I get two millimeters from the edge of the cliff? How, how much of a cliff do you want? Tell a kid to do something, and then he doesn't do it, you come back and yell at him. What does he say? Well, you didn't really say that I couldn't. You said that, they kind of twist that word just a little bit, just to kind of show you that you were not making it absolutely clear. That's what Satan does. He says, does God really say you can't have any gods before? Didn't God leave room for you to lift up your husband, lift up your children, elevate your job? Didn't God give you some room to kind of put hobbies, you know, up there with the other important things of life? Didn't God let you have a balanced life? Gee, actually he didn't. He said, thou shalt have no other gods before me. That means anything, nothing, anything. But Satan's thing is, I want to give you just enough wiggle room that you'll go outside of God's expressed will, thinking that you're staying within the looser boundaries of the whole thing. See, spiritual warfare begins when Satan has you question, what does God say in his word? How many times have you heard someone say, well, that's your interpretation. That's this lie. Did God actually say you can only have one wife. Did God actually say, talk to anybody that's come out of cults, whether they be Jehovah's Witnesses or, or Mormons or anything else, and they'll tell you about the subtle way they twist and change things. Look at the different cults that have rewritten the Bible. They rewrite John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Is that what the Bible says? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, thank you Greek language, was God Himself. But these cults out there will add the word A, making room for more gods, just like the Mormons, and build this pantheon of spirits that go outside of anything explained in the Bible. But it's a subtle confusion. Look at verse 3. 
God said, now notice this is Eve repeating this. I love this. Eve does this. God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. And here's the killer. Here's where Satan got her. Lest you die. Had anybody ever died at this point in history? At this time, when God said this and Eve quoted him, had anybody ever died? Well, there was only two people and they were both still around. So no, nobody had ever died. What did death look like? How quickly would death come? I can see Eve in her mind. She says, if I touch that, I am going to drop dead absolutely at the second I touch it. Isn't that how people in sin are? Sin goes like this. Well, I'll do it a little bit. I'll push the line. We tell our young people, you know, don't put yourself in a situation where you're going to get into sexual sin. What do they say? Well, I can do this. Well, then if I do this and I don't drop dead, and if I do this and my parents don't catch me, can't I inch it just a little further? And each time we don't get caught, each time we don't die, we inch it a little bit further. Take the person who says, you know what? I'm going to skip church today. I skip church today. You know what? I go out, I go shopping, I go to the beach, I go swimming. I have a great day and I didn't go to church. And you know what? I don't die. God doesn't kill me. I don't lose my job. My children don't throw themselves in a volcano. So missing church must be okay. If God really didn't want me to miss church, he would have done something bad to me, right? He would have punished me. That's the thinking that gets you in trouble. If nothing bad happens, it must be okay. Not necessarily. Remember what wrath is. Wrath is the judgment of God stored up, stacked up unto the appointed day when it's poured out and delivered. People think, if I don't die right away, I'm never going to die. That was the thought in the back of her head. Death wasn't real yet. She knew what it meant on the page, you know, in terms of what God had said. But in, in an experience, she didn't know what it was. Keep going. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, Ah, you will not surely die. Now here's where he slips it in. He's caused the doubt in the first place. Eve responds appropriately with God's word. Then what happens? Satan comes back with that. Oh, you're not really going to die. Who does this sound like to you? Sounds like Satan when he's, in the, when he's in the desert with Jesus. Well, God said in his word, what did Jesus always do? He always came back and answered the lie with the word. Because he tried to subtly change it. Subtly change it every time, thinking that he could deceive Jesus into taking that one step outside of faith. And that's how he's going to attack you. I had a person come to me this week. And they said, Pastor, I said, what? They said, I'm struggling with this issue. The issue is not important. Put your own sin there. I am struggling with this issue. What can I do? I said, well, first of all, son, you have to realize the battle is not in your body. The battle is not there. The battle is in your head. It's in what you believe you can and can't do, what you believe you are subject to, and what has authority over you. See, you will not surely die. Now, the woman had to step back and go, wow. So I won't die. Maybe I misunderstood God. Maybe I didn't interpret that right. Maybe I should go get a different version of the Bible and check it out over there. Y'all know about the World War II Sinner's Bible, right? Publishing House was producing Bibles for soldiers going off to World War II, and they printed it quickly to get it off to all the Navy men and all the Marines who were shipping out. And when they brought it to the docks, they had not proofread it. They printed it and gave it to them, and they made some mistakes in the Bible, some editing mistakes. One of them was in the Ten Commandments, because it said clearly that shall commit adultery. Every serviceman grabbed that Bible, opened it, read it, and went, thank you God. You know, they thought they had been delivered from the Ten Commandments. 
all the chaplains had to go back and collect them all back up. And actually, if, if you go out there, those are rare things. People love to collect those sort of weird oddities. But you see, they would seize on that and say, well, hey, this Bible says I can do it. It says it's okay. If the Bible says it, it must be right. Even though they know it was a printer's mistake, a printer's error that put that there. So there's that little, that little bit of a lie that sucks us in, that makes us want to believe. Look at the next one. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Now here the ideas of understanding. Not that the eyes were blind. They could see what was in the garden. They could see each other. They could see the world. They could see when God was walking in there. They could hear his voice. It wasn't that they were blind. Your eyes will be open, meaning you will have a deeper kind of understanding. What is it that cults promise Christians? If you join us, we will give you deeper understanding. You will understand the mysteries of the universe. We will give you a unique understanding of the nature of life and the drive of life. You see, it's that whole thing of you will be like God. Look at the rest of that. Your eyes will be open and you will be like God. And they slip off that last part, knowing good from evil. The word know here is the word to know by experience or know by understanding. See, Adam and Eve knew what? God said, don't touch it. Did they know anything about the consequence of disobedience? Did they know anything about the bite and the sting of sin? No, they didn't until they disobeyed. And it's true. Once they took of that fruit, they would be like God in that they would understand the penalty of sin, the penalty which led to death. So you see, he led them astray saying, you'll be like God. And that's all that Eve heard. I will be like God. She never heard the rest of it in knowing good from evil. Not in power, not in majesty, not in infallibility, not in eternity, but only in that one little capacity. And how many people ha have plunged into a situation or experience thinking, I am going to be enriched by this, and all that happens is you are diminished because you understand that what you have now done makes you less, not more, than you were before. I remember there was a young girl once, and uh, she was lamenting the fact that everybody in her class had been having sex. And this was in junior high school. And um, she was feeling ostracized for not having sex in junior high school. And uh, a very wise youth counselor, not me, but I wish I had been. I, that was a great line. He said, look, you go to those girls when they taunt you and say, don't you want to be like us? Don't you want to know what we know? Don't you want to have our experience? Just look them dead in the eye and say, look, I can be like you anytime I want, but you can never be like me again. That girl's face lit up. She straightened her back. She walked out and she did not need to have her eyes opened, understanding good from evil because she knew that she already had everything she needed. And she went back to those girls and she said that. And according to the report I got, their faces all fell because every single one of them realized all they wanted was one more guilty soul, one more person who had sinned, one more person who wouldn't make them feel bad. Instead, they had one shining example of a Christian girl who made their sin stand out in bright relief. Think about it. They could become like the serpent any time, but they could never become pure and holy and untouched again. That was the problem. See, spiritual warfare is about confusing your mind, confusing it on what the Word says. That's why you have to be in the Word every day. You have to read it. If the pastor reads it to you, you have to read it again. If the pastor interprets it, you need to go back to the Word of God and do it again until you are dead certain what the Word of God says. Eve knew what God said. She was there when He said it. Eve knew still 
through the subtlety of slightly twisting a word or two, she was led astray. And that's what happens to so many Christians. We are led off into pointless lives by the subtle twisting of words. But let's press on tonight. Genesis 3, 6. Just one verse. So if spiritual warfare is about confusion, it's also about seduction. Now, I have heard a quote from a, a movie critic talking about American cinema today. This guy happens to be French. Uh, so the French don't like anything other than the French. Anyways, but he said American motion pictures have seduced the world into destruction. And you know what? For the first time in my life, I agree with the French. We have seduced the world into utter depravity. Everything in our movies, everything in our music, everything in our advertising is about sex, 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 sex. Lies, deception, falsehood, airbrushed images of unreality. That's what we have in American media today. It's about seduction. And that's what he was doing in the garden. Notice what he says. Genesis 3, 6. So the woman saw that the tree was one, good for food, that two, it was a delight to the eyes, three, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave also some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Everyone skips the part. Adam was standing there the whole time. He heard the lie of the, of the serpent. He heard what she planned to do. He watched her reach out and take it. He watched her grab it. He watched her bite it to see if she fell dead. Adam was thinking, you know what? If she bites it, God's going to give me a new one. If she doesn't bite it, I get to go forward safe. See, man was chicken. Woman was just foolheartedly brave. And both of them fell because of it. Go figure that one. Okay. So the woman saw that the tree was good for the eyes. I like this. That it was good for food. Okay, so it tasty, it would look good, it looked tasty. It satisfied that desire in her for that new taste. Don't we all desire that, that new experience? What is it that makes you take your first smoke when you're a kid? You know, you see your grandpa smoking a pipe, so what do you do? You sneak over and smoke his pipe. I remember about a week or so ago, the kid that was on national television for grabbing the empty bottle of beer and turning it up end, and everybody went spastic over that. Remember that? Well, we all not watching that day. <laughs> It's like a three-year-old kid picks up a, a bottle of, of beer or something and turns it up. It was empty, but the whole thing was the image of a kid trying to get a drop of beer, trying to get that taste, just horrify people. And yet that's been happening for years. How many of us went to our grandparents or even around our parents and they gave us a little sip of this and a little sip of that? And they really shouldn't have because it, it made us, you know, hunger for that forbidden fruit. You couldn't drink, so you wanted to drink. You couldn't smoke, so you wanted to smoke. You couldn't do a lot of things, so you did them. It's the temptation of not knowing what the experience is, wanting the eyes to be open. So he said that it was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Sin never looks bad. Sin always looks attractive. It goes in through the eyes, the window of the soul. It intrigues us. Look at the way Hollywood dresses up people and dresses up characters. You look at some of the most depraved, sick, perverted people in movies today and they're always some of the most attractive male and female actors uh, and they're gloriously styled, their hair, their clothing, and it's made to look so attractive. Look at any of these um, cheater flicks where, the, where everybody's out carrying on like crazy people and they're just living a debaucherous lifestyle, kind of like sex in the city on steroids. They always got to have the most beautiful clothes, the most shapely actress, the most muscular actor, and it's got to be perfect. You don't see ugly people in movies. 
You don't see bad clothes. Unless it's a Christian or a you know, pastor or something, you know. You just don't see that. Because they want to sell you the lie, sell you the image. Hollywood's all about selling you the image. Look at the fact that in 1960, did you ever see a homosexual in a movie? Unless he was some dirty pervert in the corner somewhere. No, you didn't. Then what happens? Here comes the 70s. Here comes the 80s. Now, name me a TV show, a, main, a mainline popular TV show that does not have at least one gay character in it somewhere who's portrayed in a positive fashion. There is no more negativity associated with it. Hollywood is not trying to reflect society to you. It is trying to tell you what your society should look like, what you should accept, what you should think is good, what you should find acceptable. Look at the behavior of any young person on TV. If that was your son or daughter, would you want them acting like that? Heavens no! But TV is selling it to them. This is what you want to be, kids. This is what you want to look like. This is, this is how you look like you're part of everything that's going on. And it scares me that the seduction of TV and MTV and videos and movies is so effective at bringing our children into this world where they want to have their eyes open to everything. But when their eyes are opened, there's no way to protect them again. There's no way to bring them back to that state of innocence. It's all lost. They can never go back once they've gone forward. If you want to know what I'm talking about, Look at James 1, 14 through 17. It says this, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desires, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to changing. Now think that out. You will never see this presented in a movie. God gives you the perfect opportunity to enjoy sex after marriage. He, he allows you to enjoy the perfect intimate relationship once you've committed to it. He brings everything into your life at the right time. How many of us got into trouble because too much came too soon and we were not emotionally ready? Yet if we had listened to the Bible, if we had listened to the Ten Commandments, if we had done things God's way, we would never have gotten caught up in the things that almost destroyed us along the way. I know enough of the testimonies in this church and I know enough of the testimonies of, of fellow believers around the world to know this. The thing that destroys most people is too much comes too soon when they're not ready to deal with it. And then it falls to psychiatrists and psychologists and pastors like me to start putting people back together again after they realize how much damage they've done to themselves. That's what I'm dealing with right now with some people in our church. They have done severe damage to themselves and now we're trying to put them back together again. And there's some of them that I'm going to have to refer outside to professional help because I don't have even the, the faintest amount of knowledge to help some of these people get put, get put back together again. It's the whole Humpty Dumpty thing. It's crazy. But see, spiritual warfare will try to seduce you to seize what looks good, what tastes good, what satisfies your desires. I mean, there it is. Each person is tempted when he or she is lured and enticed by his own desires. What do you desire? What do you want for your life? When you come to the end of your life, what do you want? And that is where Satan will take you. Do you want people to like you? That's where Satan will attack you. Do you want to provide for your family? That's where Satan will attack you. Do you want to be self-sufficient? That's where Satan will attack you. Do you want to do a, a good job teaching the Word of God in church? That's where Satan will attack you. He will attack you in the thing that you want most. And he will offer you a way to do it as quickly and cheaply and inappropriately as possible. That's why so many people wind up destroying their testimony because they're trying to do a good thing, but they're trying to do it the wrong way. People always say, what's wrong with premarital sex? Easy. You're not ready for it. 
premarital sex is wrong because God designed it to be within the shield, within the protection of marriage that comes after the relationship is established and after the commitment is made. Anything prior to that is unprotected, it's unsafe. That's why we say don't have sex before marriage. Plus, after marriage, Nothing compares to the adrenaline of the sin before marriage. It, it diminishes. It becomes less than it should instead of more than it should. When it's kept for after marriage, it's more. It's greater. It's more special. It's protected. And we don't tell kids that. We just say, don't do it. How irresponsible are we? Don't tell them don't do it. Tell them why they don't do it. Because Satan's laying a trap for your eyes and your heart. And once he sucks you in and destroys you, you are useless to the kingdom until God puts you back together again. And sometimes people get so torn up, they never come back. That's what happens. That's why the seduction of spiritual warfare is so dangerous. Last one, and we're finished. Genesis 3-7. Spiritual warfare is about the destruction of the Christian. It's about the destruction of the Christian. That's all it's about. Last one. Genesis 3-7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Everyone gets freaked out about this verse. I don't know why. It's very simple. Go back and read it. Now, spiritual warfare, it begins with confusion. It is drawn along to seduction. The confusion makes room. The seduction pulls you in. The goal is your destruction. Then the eyes of both were opened. It means they had understanding of their situation. They understood something greater than what they understood before. They had more knowledge, but it was a knowledge that was not to their benefit. And they knew that they were naked. Big deal. They've been walking around butt naked for days. What was the big issue about being naked? Don't forget, in the Hebrew mind, this was written to Hebrews by Moses so they could understand what did nakedness have to do with anything. It wasn't about being unclothed physically. That wasn't a big deal, really. It was about being exposed. What happened is when man and woman sinned, when they took that fruit, they were exposed. Their sin was exposed not only to God, but to each of them. They could see in it. One man, I like, one man said this, From that day forward, men and women had the blush of shame on them. Not the shame of their naked bodies, the shame of their naked disobedience to God. Why did they hide? Was it really that God didn't know what their bodies looked like? No. God knew it. God formed them. Nothing wrong with the body. But God could see on their face and on their body the blush of shame and sin. And that's a blush we've never lost. I mean, what happens even today if you embarrass somebody? They turn red, they blush because they're embarrassed. When God looked at Adam and Eve, they blushed. But they mistakenly tried to cover the body when they should have been trying to cover the soul. Later, it's only God that can cover up the sin of their soul. It's only God that can cover the blush of shame in their life. See, understand this. Satan's whole goal is to make you embarrassed about your life, your mistakes, so that you will not go to church, you will sit home, you will be useless, you will be silent, you will be a doorpost, you will be nothing that matters in the work of the kingdom. Satan doesn't want you in church. He doesn't want you exposed to the word. He doesn't want you to hear the truth. He wants you to hear the convenient lies spun by the spin doctors of the religious world so that you will believe them and buy into their religious nonsense. And that's what Satan wants too. Satan wants you to buy into the nonsense. He wants you to buy into... Satan wants you to be religious. He wants you to be so religious that you live in church and you are never in your community sharing Christ. He wants you to be so busy blowing your own trumpet that you're never telling somebody else that they can be saved by God's grace. 
The blush of embarrassment is this. Have you ever watched politicians? Politicians are wonderful at this. They do something horribly wrong. You never notice this one? What's the first thing they do? Blame somebody else. Oh yes, I did this, but don't forget so and so and so and so and so and so. What did the general not do? The general did not pass the buck. Why is he fired? Because he shouldn't have said what he said and his staff should not have said what they said. But the truth is, he manned up. He took responsibility. He stood before the president. He still got himself fired, but he left with dignity and honor and grace. That's what most people don't have. We want to blame everybody else. We want to push it off on somebody else. We want somebody else to bear the burden of what we've done. They tried to hide their shame. Okay, one last verse and I'm done. Hebrews 4, 13 through 16 says this, And no creature is hidden from his sight, meaning God, but all are naked and exposed. There's the concept. Naked, not in the body, but naked in the spirit. Exposed, meaning everything that they've done, everything they've thought, every, every word they've spoken is seen. They are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, our nakedness, our embarrassment, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows every temptation that you have failed to fight. Jesus knows every temptation you are going to face. He knows the temptation to get drunk. I think dealing with the apostles, I'd be tempted to get drunk too. If you look at those jokers, sometimes Jesus had the temptation to overeat. Okay, some of us have lost that battle. He had the temptation to succumb to women. Chicks dug the Lord. I mean, he's a good looking guy, you know, preacher. Everyone knows the preacher. That's just part of the gig, you know. So, yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I'm just going for an example here. Okay. Jesus had all those examples and I love it the whole secular world always wants to put Jesus in bed with Mary Magdalene because if they could do that he's not the son of God he is a fallible man just like us and we don't have to listen but he never did that he never gave in to the temptation he never allowed himself to be less than what he was the perfect sinless son of God that means he knows how to beat the system and if the Holy Spirit's inside of us, we can beat the system too. Satan wants you to forget that you carry the Holy Spirit inside you. You carry the truth in your head that prevents confusion. You cover your heart with all of God's blessings, all that he's poured out in his time, and you won't be seduced by the here and the now and the have it tomorrow mentality. And if you don't give in to the confusion, you don't give in to the seduction of I've got to have it today, then you will not be destroyed as these people were destroyed. They sold those fig leaves, but it's crazy. Hebrews 4.16 sums it up. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Today's a time of need, amen. In our church, in our families, in our lives, we have needs, whether it's physical needs, spiritual needs, um, you know, family needs, financial needs. We all have needs. It says, and when those things happen, don't look for the cheap way out. Go to the throne of grace. Put yourself before the Father and wait for the provision. Does that mean you, you can stay home and skip work? No. Does that mean you can be a bum and loaf around? No. It means you have to do everything you can do, but at the end of days, you got to go to Christ for what you need. And don't try to satisfy yourself. Don't try to cheapskate it and get it in and get it done your way. That's how Satan works. Okay, so how do I survive? One, I have to know the truth. I have to know the Word of God inside and out. 
Meditate on it day and night is what the Old Testament says. Thy word have I hid in my heart so that I won't sin against you. If I know this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong, I won't do it. But I have to dwell on that word daily. Two, I got to guard my eyes. The brother I'm dealing with right now, I said, man, you have got to put blinders on yourself. Now, in New York, they put blinders on horses. If a horse sees something to the left or to the right, he'll go look at it. He'll turn himself and start walking sideways. If you put blinders on a horse, it can only see where he's going. That's where he's going to go. In essence, men, women, when we go out in the world and walk past the beach, ladies, when you go to the store and you see a sail, you've got to put the blinders on and you don't see anything outside of this realm. And you keep going where you're going. That's what you have to do. Keep your eyes on the prize. Keep walking. And remember, Satan is going to put things in front of you. This morning, I was viciously attacked on the way to church. This is true. Erdenberg knows this. I was driving down Hipkins Road. And way ahead of me, way ahead of me, I saw two raccoons cross the road. I said, good. They, they got across the road. I got up on the curb. That stupid thing got out in the road, faced my car. I could see his little demon eyes glowing. He ran at my car. Stupid, suicidal, bonsai raccoon. Anyways, he got right there. I locked up the brakes at 5.30 in the morning. I'm screaming the brakes because I don't want to kill this dumb thing. He hit my car. This thing hit my car. I'm like, this is not good. See, Satan just throws things at you. But it's okay. <laughs> you guard your eyes, you keep going. Just don't worry about it. Finally, when you have failed, when you have failed, and you will fail, I will fail, we will all fail. When you fail, come to God rather than run from Him. Instead of trying to disguise or dress up your sin, instead of trying to wash your sin away by clothing it in religion and religious activity, come to your Father, confess your sin, be cleansed, and go back to work. Go back to life. Be the prodigal son. Come home. And then get back to what you're supposed to do. All right, let's pray. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in today to listening to our programs. We appreciate your attention. We present this for you as a way of building up God's people, giving you hope in these dark days. They are presented to you commercial-free. We don't solicit money from any companies, Bible organizations, or churches. We put it out there because we believe wholeheartedly that the Word of God is the only hope this country or any country could have. Because we present it to you commercial-free, we do ask you to search your heart. If you feel the need to support us in any way, it, it, could, be a, it could be a love offering, a gift, send me enough for a cup of coffee. I'd really appreciate it. You can send all support to Richard Stidham, S-T-I-D-H-A-M, Richard Stidham at Box 1321. Baytown, Texas, 77521, and everything you send to us will be used to keep this podcast on the air. Have a great day. God bless, and remember, keep looking up. Our salvation is drawing near.